Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 11, Episode 2, The Siege of Osaka. Tensions between Tokugawa Ieyasu and the Toyotomi clan can be traced back at least as far as the aftermath of Sekigahara. It is possible that elements within the Toyotomi clan harbored much older grudges, but the dispensation of fiefs that followed the defeat of the Western Army in 1600 was almost certainly a sticking point for anti-Tokugawa partisans who followed the Taiko's heir. Before Sekigahara, the Toyotomi clan's domains were valued at a whopping 2.2 million koku, an amount which rivaled Tokugawa Ieyasu's own Kanto domain. When land was seized, redistributed, and new domains created after Sekigahara, however, the domains which remained in Toyotomi hands were valued at 650,000 koku, a little over a quarter of their previous holdings. The readjustment of the Toyotomi domains was done in 1603, just after Tokugawa Ieyasu was named shogun. This left the Toyotomi clan, of which Hideyori was the nominal chieftain, in charge of Setsu, Kawach, and Izumi provinces, a modest holding for a daimyo who was supposedly so important. Before departing for Edo in 1603, Ieyas had rebuilt Nobunaga's headquarters in Kyoto, a building which today is known as Nijo Castle, and stationed strong garrisons in the fortifications of the surrounding area. In Nijo Castle he stationed the Shoshidai, the shogun's deputy in the old capital, who acted as a liaison between the Bakufu and the imperial court. The anti-Tokugawa partisans within the Toyotomi clan no doubt gnashed their teeth at Ieyasu's short shrift, but they could do nothing about it but complain. Among the higher echelons of Toyotomi partisans were several ranking samurai who were largely friendly to Tokugawa Ieyasu. Among them was Kato Kiyomasa and Ikeda Terumasa, both of whom had been granted large fiefs by Tokugawa Ieyasu after their service at Sekigahara. In fact, both had their income expanded to 520,000 koku per year thanks to their wartime rewards, putting them on almost equal footing with Hideyoshi's heir as far as finances were concerned. Ieyasu believed that if push came to shove, both men would resist him in the name of Hideyori, so he sought to establish more official ties to Hideyoshi's heir early on in his shogunal career. In 1603, as a sign of goodwill and loyalty, Tokugawa Ieyasu offered his seven-year-old granddaughter Senhime in marriage to the ten-year-old Hideyori. This gesture reassured Toyotomi partisans like Kato Kiyomasa that the shogun was operating in good faith and had every intention of respecting the late Taiko's will. The offer was accepted and Senhime went to live with her new family at Osaka Castle. While Hideyori remained the nominal heir to Toyotomi Hideyoshi, his status gradually diminished after 1603. With the Tokugawa clan taking the reins as the new shoguns, it was natural that the young child of the late Hideyoshi would suddenly seem much less important. As the new shogunate began issuing orders, many of which were for daimyos to fund construction projects, the various powerful clans around the nation dedicated their attention on either cozying up to the new shogunate or at least keeping themselves off the new boss's enemies list. In spite of Hideyori's status as the heir to the great Hideyoshi, he had been effectively reduced in status to that of just another middling daimyo. 
However, the Toyotomi clan had one particularly massive advantage in the great Game of Thrones, an embarrassing amount of wealth. Hideyoshi had grown very rich toward the end of his life, largely by stockpiling gold which he had seized from enemy daimyo throughout the course of his career, and Hideyori stood to inherit the entirety of that windfall. With any other clan, the Tokugawa shogunate might chip away at such wealth by demanding support for building projects, but they still needed to deal with the Toyotomi in a more cautious fashion to avoid earning the ire of their supporters. Throughout Toyotomi Hideyori's adolescent years, rumors circulated that he was growing into a soft sort of aristocrat, practically a kuge. Ieyasu would certainly have little to fear if the stories about his layabout nature and love of finer things were true. However, in 1611, when Hideyori was 17, a meeting was brokered between himself and Ieyasu in hopes that a future struggle might be avoided. The primary movers behind this meeting were Kato Kiyomasa and Ikeda Terumasa, among many other high-ranking Toyotomi supporters who favored maintaining amicable relations with Tokugawa Ieyasu. However, some historians point to this meeting as the moment when Tokugawa Ieyasu finally decided that he needed to eliminate the Toyotomi clan entirely if he hoped to maintain what power he had consolidated for both himself and his descendants. It is reported that Toyotomi Hideyori acquitted himself admirably at this meeting with the shogun, showing himself to be not only capable of displaying fine courtly etiquette, but also possessing a keen mind capable of governing more than the modest fief which he had been entrusted. Allegedly, a competent heir to Hideyoshi was something that Tokugawa Ieyasu could not tolerate. That being said, the precise moment when Tokugawa Ieyasu decided to betray Toyotomi Hideyori is a matter of fierce historical debate, and something which we are unlikely to decide in this humble podcast. Some point to Sekigahara as the moment when Ieyasu found it unacceptable to suffer rivalry, while others point to his appointment as Sei Taishogun. Yet others would claim that Ieyasu planned to betray the Toyotomi in the very moment when Hideyoshi died, while others would argue that he patiently tolerated Hideyori's provocations until he reached his limits somewhere around 1614. While I personally believe, for the moment, that the meeting of 1611 was the moment when Ieyasu may have made a mental note to at least test the waters by challenging the Toyotomi as soon as they gave him the opportunity, I am not certain that I would be able to defend this view in a more academic setting. Whatever the case, there can be little doubt that at some point between 1598 and 1614, Tokugawa Ieyasu decided that the continued existence of the Toyotomi clan alongside the Tokugawa clan was a development which he would not be able to tolerate forever. Among their many other quasi-political charity projects, the Toyotomi clan was deeply involved in the reconstruction of the Great Buddha of Hokoji Temple in Kyoto. The Tokugawa clan likewise had contributed significant capital to this renovation-slash-restoration of a giant Buddha statue which was originally sponsored by Toyotomi Hideyoshi himself. While this effort may have been honestly supported by Ieyasu when it began, the Toyotomi clan would soon blunder into an embarrassing typographical error which would give Ieyasu the just cause he needed to rightfully make war against them. Before we delve into the Hokoji Bell incident of 1614, we need to acknowledge a few practical realities of the Tokugawa shogunate and its rivals in the mid-1610s. 
Kato Kiyomasa had died of illness in 1611, and many other powerful supporters of Hideyori had lost their lives before the incidents in 1614, which would lead to open conflict between the diehards who still followed Hideyoshi's ghosts and the armed forces of the Edo Bakufu. Many of the descendants of staunch Toyotomi clan supporters now flocked to ingratiate themselves with the Tokugawa instead. By the time the Hokoji Bell incident reared its head, the Toyotomi clan had alienated or otherwise lost many of its most powerful backers. Which brings us to the infamous Hokoji Bell incident. Hideyori had, back in 1610, ordered a great bronze bell to be cast for Hokoji Temple. In 1614, the four-and-a-half-meter bell was finally finished, and was subsequently covered in decorative four-kanji calligraphic inscriptions. Combining four-kanji to succinctly express a deep meaning is an old practice in Japan, and such four-kanji combinations are called yoji-jukugo. Oftentimes, these are used to express cultural idioms, and are probably one of the hardest things to learn about the Japanese language. Two of the new Yojijukugo inscriptions caught the attention of the Bakufu, who by this point were eager for an opportunity to more thoroughly dominate the Toyotomi clan by any means necessary. These offending inscriptions read Koka Anko, which meant May the state be peaceful and prosperous, while the other read Kunshin Horaku, which meant May the sovereign and his subjects be wealthy and cheerful. You may be wondering what, if anything, the shogunate could have possibly taken issue with in these two inscriptions. The answer lies in the kanji characters which were employed. The first inscription used two kanji which were also used for the name Ieyas. Because the phrase separated those two kanji, the bakufu accused Hideyori of casting a curse on the shogun by breaking his name. This may seem strange, but the custom of avoiding using characters in names of important persons originated in China, where it was sometimes a crime for people to write the exact characters of the current emperor's name. Whether any offense was intended by Hideyori is uncertain, and to me seems unlikely, but if the inscription was made thoughtlessly, then it was a blunder of the highest order. It was made worse by the fact that the kanji for peace was included in the inscription between the characters of Ieyasu's name, which the shogun claim implied that peace would come to Japan when Ieyasu had been destroyed. The second inscription, May the Sovereign and His Subjects Be Wealthy and Cheerful, also caused offense because it contained the characters used in the name Toyotomi, and if the four kanji were rearranged in a certain way, they would proclaim Toyotomi's force will rise again. Both of these inscriptions being included on a bell for a temple in the nation's nominal capital led Tokugawa Ieyasu to conclude that the Toyotomi clan intended to attack the shogun, which was an act of treason. Efforts were immediately undertaken by Toyotomi agents to try and resolve this conflict before things got out of hand. In particular, a distinguished samurai named Katagiri Katsumoto was chosen to act as a negotiator with the Edo shogunate to smooth over the calligraphic blunder. Katsumoto was an interesting fellow. He was one of the fabled Seven Spears of Shizukatake, alongside the late Kato Kiyomasa, and although he had been made a daimyo like the other Seven Spears thanks to their bold, decisive actions at Shizukatake, his fortunes had risen measurably slower than the others. In his conduct and work, he more closely resembled Ishida Mitsunari than Kato Kiyomasa, 
serving primarily as a scholar, administrator, and courtly aristocrat. When Katagiri Katsumoto came to Edo to negotiate with Ieyas, he found the shogun obstinate and unmoving. Ieyas made outrageous demands of the Toyotomi clan, which were extremely excessive considering the supposed crime they had committed. His biggest demand, which he must have known would be refused, was that Yodo Dono, the mother of Hideyori, should be sent to Edo to live as a hostage and ensure the future cooperation of the Toyotomi clan. Yodo Dono had been known as one of the staunchest anti-Tokugawa partisans, and it was hardly a secret that she disliked Ieyas and believed that he had usurped national authority which rightfully belonged to her son. Some sources claim that she issued the refusal to come to Edo as a hostage, while other sources posit that she was willing to go, but that it was Hideyori himself who refused to allow his mother to live as a prisoner in Edo. The negotiations between Katagiri Katsumoto and Tokugawa Ieyas had, in a very short time, come to an impasse. Making matters even worse, Yorodono became suspicious of Katsumoto and arranged for Hideyori to dismiss him from their service while he was still trying to work out a peace deal. This left Katsumoto with little choice but to approach Tokugawa Ieyas about entering his service instead, which the shogun happily agreed to. Reports soon began flowing into Edo that the Toyotomi clan in Osaka Castle was beginning to make some rather provocative moves. Hideyori had put out a call to arms, summoning all loyal samurai and especially inviting Ronin in Kansai to fight for the rightful heir to Hideyoshi, using the Toyotomi clan's vast gold reserves to hire an army full of masterless samurai. Tokugawa Ieyas had his opportunity at last, and he ordered for a Bakufu army to be raised in short order. In late 1614, the shogunate dispatched an army said to number 120,000 to take Osaka and bring an end to Hideyori's so-called rebellion. While an army of this size was a considerable force to bring against any opponent, the Toyotomi clan had also gathered a considerable army of their own. Those who had responded to Hideyori's call to arms were said to number around 160,000. While most of these were ronin, this did not mean that they were necessarily low-quality warriors. Some had been trusted retainers of daimyo who had been killed, while others had formerly been daimyo in their own right. One particular former daimyo who took up the cause of the Toyotomi clan was Sanada Yukimura, whose family had served the Takeda clan until surrendering to Nobunaga's forces in 1582 and serving him for a short time until his assassination later that year. The Sanada clan took efforts to become vassals of Hideyoshi, and Sanada Yukimura himself even married an adopted daughter of the Taiko in 1587. Although they claimed illustrious lineage from Seiwa Genji stock, the Sanada clan were not some stuffy aristocratic samurai who relied on their vassals to act as their muscle. Several of Takeda Shingen's famous generals were from the Sanada clan, and by all accounts they had adapted admirably to the tumultuous realities of Sengoku Jidai. During the Battle of Sekigahara, Sanada Yukimura had the opportunity to show just how capable an opponent he could be. When battle lines began to emerge between Ishida Mitsunari and Tokugawa Ieyasu, the members of the Sanada family appear to have split their loyalties, with some joining the Western army, and some joining its eastern counterpart. Historians sometimes ascribe ideological or personal reasons for their choice of allegiance, 
But it's also worth remembering that clans dividing their members among two sides of a large conflict to ensure the clan's survival, regardless of the outcome, had been a common feature in Japanese warfare since at least the Nambokucho War, and likely long before that. Regardless of his reasons, Sanada Yukimura was in a unique position in the lead-up to Sekigahara. As the Eastern Army marched some of its columns near his own lands, he fortified Ueda Castle and prepared for an assault. Tokugawa Hidetada obliged with a siege using several ten thousands worth of troops allegedly under his command. Although Yukimura had only 2,000 troops holding the fortress against Hidetada's estimated 38,000, Ueda Castle never fell to any of their attempted assaults. The effort to seize the fortress took so much time that Hidetada missed the Battle of Sekigahara itself after supposedly ignoring his father's command to break off the siege and join them in Mino. After the Western Army's defeat, however, Sanada Yukimura found himself on the losing side of the civil conflict. Seeing that further resistance was pointless, he surrendered and was sent to the monastery on Mount Koya in exile. When Toyotomi Hideyori issued a call to arms in 1614, however, Sanada Yukimura saw an opportunity to get back in the game. Because his bold and effective defense of Ueda Castle was now the subject of legend, Toyotomi Hideyori placed Sanada Yukimura in charge of Osaka's defense. This appointment by Hideyori was something that historians would later call an incredibly good move. Yukimura set out preparing the fortifications of Osaka for the inevitable punitive force already being assembled by the shogunate. Osaka Castle, you may recall, was built upon the ruins of Ishiyama Fortress, which held out against Oda Nobunaga's forces for 11 years. Hideyoshi had ordered its construction with the intention of having a solid, defensible fortress from which the Toyotomi clan could safely rule over the nation for the foreseeable future. Its massive stone walls were surrounded by two formidable moats, and a series of forts in the area provided a wide defensive perimeter. In addition to this, the entire structure was constructed on a veritable island in the middle of a river delta. This meant that the land around the castle was broken by a network of broad streams, which made safely accessing the castle a challenge for those attempting assault. Sanada Yukimura opted to construct an additional defensive structure called a barbican at the castle's southwest corner to protect a vulnerable gate where the Tokugawa forces were sure to try and push through. The fortification, a tall circular structure which was surrounded by part of Osaka Castle's moat, was given the name Sanada Maru, which means Sanada's circle. Its thick wooden walls were dotted with murder holes from which defenders could fire arquebuses while being protected from the enemy's bullets. When Tokugawa Ieyasu arrived with his army, they set about systematically capturing the smaller fortresses around Osaka Castle's perimeter as well as several villages which were lightly defended. The Toyotomi's outer defenses fell one after another until the shogunate's army arrived at Sanada Maru Fortress. At first glance, it may have appeared that the Sanadamaru was about to be swallowed up just like the other outlying fortresses of Osaka. Sanada Yukimura held it with a garrison only about 7,000 strong, and the Tokugawa detachment which came to seize it numbered around 30,000. However, the design of the fortress itself made it a daunting presence on the battlefield. Its earthen foundation stretched high above the ground below, and the defenders were well protected as they fired their weapons from inside the compound. On December 4, 1614, 
the Tokugawa forces charged the Sanada Maru, attempting to scale its walls and seize the fortress just as they had done at the previous engagements. However, in spite of attacking in several massed waves, the besiegers were driven back every time. The defenders met with such success that on several occasions they sallied forth from the battlement and actually broke through the siege lines before falling back to the Sanada Maru fortress. Frustrated by these setbacks and eager to resolve the matter, Tokugawa Ieyasu resorted to a tactic which was little seen in his day and age. He ordered that Osaka Castle be bombarded with cannons. While cannonry had already begun to play a massive and important role in warfare throughout Europe and in naval combat, the cannons available to Japanese daimyo in the 1600s were not capable of destroying the stone foundations upon which their enemies' castles were built. You may recall also from last season that Oda Nobunaga had attempted cannon bombardment against some of his foes on the battlefield with practically no success. While the stone foundations were not vulnerable targets, the wooden structures which dotted the castle's interior certainly weren't cannon-proof, and thus the bombardment was focused on firing over the massive stone walls in hopes of striking important targets within. For 15 days the bombardment continued but with little to nothing to show for it. The defenders still stubbornly held their ground and refused to entertain the idea of surrender. Arrows with messages begging such surrender were launched into the castle, but to no visible effect. The Tokugawa besiegers resorted to employing sappers to try and dig under the walls, but this meant digging under the moats and was sure to be a time-consuming affair. Thus, Ieyasu resorted to another tried-and-true tactic. Bribery. Whether he called for a parlay or communicated through sending messages via arrow which were addressed to Sanada Yukimura, I was not able to ascertain. Through some channel or other, however, Ieyasu pleaded with Yukimura to change sides, offering him a bribe for his shifting loyalty. Yukimura, who was certainly no fan of Tokugawa Ieyasu, not only refused the offer, but made the incident public knowledge, embarrassing the retired shogun and ensuring that the Toyotomi would be especially on guard against any such attempts against the loyalty of their other partisans. True to form, Tokugawa Ieyasu offered a bribe to an officer named Nanjo Tadashige, who had agreed to open the castle gates and allow the invading army inside. This plot was discovered before it could be executed, however, and Tadashige was beheaded as a traitor. There can be little doubt that Tokugawa Ieyasu was becoming increasingly frustrated with these failed efforts, and may have even been concerned about long-term success. If the very clans whom he had formerly pacified sensed that they might have another chance to revenge themselves upon the Tokugawa clan, they might start sending real support to the Toyotomi and plunge the nation into a massive civil war from which it might never recover. He needed his enemies to come to the table to at least prevent a larger rebellion from fomenting. To help provide his enemies with the proper motivation for coming to said table, Ieyasu turned to his cannoneers. He ordered them to find a way to target a few specific structures within the castle, and after some experimentation, they were able to aim their weapons appropriately. Their target was the quarters of Yodo Dono, the mother of Toyotomi Hideyori, who was the primary anti-Tokugawa partisan in the Toyotomi clan. The cannoneers succeeded in striking her residence, but happened to do so at a moment when she was not present. Unfortunately, they killed two maids in the process. Still, the objective was not really to kill Lady Yodo, but to inspire fear. Shortly thereafter, when he knew that Hideyori would be attending a temple service to honor his late father, 
Ieyasu ordered that the temple dedicated to Hideyoshi be targeted. In the ensuing bombardment, some of the ordnance came close to striking Hideyori's head. This was all the motivation that the Toyotomi clan needed to pursue peace negotiations. It is clear from the terms of the peace settlement which was negotiated in early 1615 that the Toyotomi were indeed terrified from the bombardment campaign. It is also clear that the retired shogun was eager to put a halt to the conflict for the time being, possibly for fear that an extended campaign might encourage more regional support. The Tokugawa demanded that the outer moat of Osaka Castle be filled with earth, but allowed Hideyori to keep Osaka as his fief and even offered to give him a more valuable fief anywhere in the nation if he so desired. That last item was probably bait to entice the Toyotomi into accepting a less defensible headquarters, and Hideyori wisely declined. The agreement was reached, but in the execution of its terms, the Tokugawa-led laborers who stayed behind to fill in the moat opted to also destroy the inner moat of the fortress as well. This was officially blamed on a misunderstanding on the part of the workers, though I don't think anyone then or now believes that it was not intentional. Although peace had been reached and the siege lines lifted, this was not the end of the conflict between the Toyotomi and the shogunate. Tokugawa Hidetada, the official shogun, stayed behind to supervise the reduction of Osaka's defenses while Ieyasu traveled to Kyoto in order to assure the emperor that the war had ended before going on to Edo. When Hidetada returned to Edo in March, reports were already flooding the city that the Toyotomi forces had begun re-excavating the moat and were openly meeting with ronin like Sanada Yukimura. While the typical narrative of the siege of Osaka is that Tokugawa Ieyasu never intended to allow the Toyotomi to survive and was determined to find some means of removing Hideyori from the equation of national power, it is worth noting that the Toyotomi clan was also negotiating in bad faith. The first plan to be considered by the Toyotomi War Council was to launch a night attack against the Tokugawa encampment while the peace was being negotiated, but this plan was scrapped. Shortly after the peace was secured, however, Hideyori and his generals were certain that this measure was a temporary measure to catch their breath and prepare to eventually take the shogunate on once again. It was decided that, unlike the previous skirmish, this time the Toyotomi army would launch an offensive against Ieyasu's partisans. Shortly after Tokugawa Hideitada's departure in the spring, the Toyotomi leaders began rebuilding the forts around Osaka Castle and even expanding their defensive capabilities by building new fortifications in the surrounding area. The larger plan which they hatched was simple, gain military control of a broader area around Osaka and also seize Kyoto. Once the Tenno was in their care, he could be induced to declare Tokugawa Ieyasu a rebel. However, it was difficult to keep such matters secret, and when rumors began to spread that the Toyotomi were planning to seize Kyoto, the residents fled the city in a panic, and the shogun's representatives there launched an internal investigation to see if any among their number had been compromised. One low-ranking daimyo, an innovator of ceramics and the tea ceremony named Furuta Uribe, was arrested on suspicion of plotting against the shogunate and later forced along with his son to commit seppuku. Tokugawa Ieyasu was kept largely informed about the Toyotomi activities, and in May, he traveled to Nagoya, where he met with a Toyotomi defector. This particular turncoat has a somewhat familiar name, Oda Nagamasu. This Christian convert was one of Nobunaga's brothers, 
and he had previously led troops alongside the Tokugawa at the Battle of Sekigahara. Nagamasu informed Ieyasu all about the inner workings of the Toyotomi War Council, particularly how Yodo Dono was the driving force behind the entire organization. While seizing the capital may have been a beneficial maneuver for the Toyotomi, they were not ready to march on Kyoto before Ieyasu's arrival in May of 1615. Hidetada arrived soon after, and by early June their armies were ready to march. The fighting began as a series of skirmishes and small-scale battles that were fought in a broad front around the periphery of Osaka Castle. The Toyotomi loyalists fought Tokugawa-allied armies in the battles of Domyoji and Yao, both of which resulted in broad victories for the shogunate, but were not completely disastrous routes for the defenders. A few familiar names appear in these battles, including Date Masamune, who fought for the shogunate, and Chosokabe Morichika, who fought for the Toyotomi. On June 3rd, with the previous battles resulting in defeat, Toyotomi loyalists staged a last-stand set-piece battle which became known as the Battle of Tennoji. Sanada Yukimura led troops in this engagement, and it was hoped that he would have similar success against the Tokugawa that he had enjoyed in the previous attempted siege. The shogunate amassed an army of around 150,000, and the Toyotomi had gathered 71,000, meaning they were outnumbered about 2 to 1. Thus, an aggressive strategy was pursued by the defenders, which carried high risks while offering high rewards. While Sanada Yukimura and his fellow frontline generals attacked the Tokugawa front, a detachment under Akashi Morishige would wheel around and attack the shogunate's rear guard. Once the Tokugawa army was thus pinched between hammer and anvil, Hideyori himself would ride out of the castle with the garrison at his heels, waving the battle flag of Hideyosh and driving the Tokugawa from the field. Such a plan can work, but it relies on good timing, disciplined troops, and more than a little luck. The troops fighting for the Toyotomi were largely ronin, and their samurai pride sometimes meant that they disobeyed direct orders from superiors whom they did not respect. They did not possess the same level of cohesion as the shogunate army, who grossly outnumbered them, and when the Battle of Tennoji began, the difference between the two sides became glaringly apparent. The Tokugawa front line pushed back against the frontal assault, which led the Toyotomi front lines to disengage without orders, which turned into a near rout. Sanada Yukimura himself was killed in the onslaught, leaving a large portion of the front lines without a commander. Because the shogunate army was not busy engaging its front, when Akashi Morishige's detachment struck for their rear guard, they were prepared and easily repulsed the attempted flank. The entire Toyotomi army fell apart before the eyes of Hideyori, who watched from Osaka's ramparts and waited for his big triumphant moment to arrive. Unfortunately for the heir of Hideyosh, that moment never came. Instead, Osaka Castle was besieged once more, and again subjected to continuous bombardment. Eventually, the cannon fire caused a fire to erupt in the main keep, which convinced Hideyori and his remaining partisans that their cause was lost. Lady Yodo and her son Hideyori committed seppuku as Osaka Castle burned around them. Measures were taken to secure the rescue of Senhime, the daughter of Tokugawa Hidetada who had married Hideyori, and she was saved from suffering a similar fate to her husband. Hideyori's eight-year-old son Toyotomi Kunimatsu, however, was not so fortunate. He attempted to hide in the chaotic aftermath of the battle, but was discovered and executed. 
The Siege of Osaka was the last time that large samurai armies fought on Japan until the Meiji Restoration of the late 1800s. The affair concluded with the further cementing of the Tokugawa clan as the preeminent power on the archipelago and the elimination of the last potential rival to Ieyasu's supremacy. Next time, we will discuss the final year of Ieyasu's life and the reigns of his two successors, who would have their equal share of difficulty in dealing with the problems of Ronin. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan.